Hi, this is Angel Wilson and welcome to Spark Up. Hello everyone and welcome to my little corner of the podcast world. It is Angel bringing you another mini Spark episode. So these episodes, like I've said before, are kind of shortened versions of the longer ones and usually have to deal with either news stories that have come up recently or just little things that have popped up in my head that may not be long enough for a full you know, 45 minute episode, but I think are topics or discussions that need to be done. And this one today is most definitely for my providers out there. Those are the teachers, daycare workers, school admin, therapists, I mean, mental health therapists, occupational therapists, speech therapists, ABA, BCBAs, all of you, this episode is most definitely for you. So our providers, we all know that oftentimes we are the first ones to notice possible developmental delays in a child because a lot of us are with the kids for many, many hours of the day. That's not a dig at the families. It's just the reality of the situation. Daycare workers see the kids for what, eight to 10 hours a day and are with them through meal times, bathroom breaks, nap times, different activities. So they get a pretty good and well-rounded look at the child. The topic for today springs from some stats that I've seen in the last week regarding developmental delay identification and evaluation, particularly when it comes to those, are those frontline providers who are often the first ones to notice that something may be a little different or uh, may be delayed with a child. I'm actually in the process of putting together a training for an organization that will include uh, a lengthier version of this very subject. It'll have a whole section dedicated to just what we're going to talk about today. And if you want to know more about the trainings that I do through my business, which is Spark Guidance, I don't think I usually mention that, but yeah, I have a business. This is, this is one part of a, a, a bigger enterprise that I have. I'll mention my contact info at the end. And if you're interested in the training, you can hit me up. The stats that I saw that inspired this episode. So in a um, particular organization, there were there are a lot of kids that, you know, use the services of this organization. And in the stats that I saw, there were 20 that were identified by the providers or the workers as possibly having developmental delay, I'll say DD from here on out, or possibly autism. Right off the bat, 20 actually seems a little low considering how many kids are serviced, but I was like, okay, let's, I'll, okay, 20. Out of the 20 families that were contacted, 15 declined to go any further. Five ended up being evaluated, two were diagnosed with either a developmental delay or autism. But I want to go back to that second, that second piece. 15 out of 20 declined free resources to evaluate if their child was developmentally delayed. Of course, my first question was, why? Why would this many families decline a service like this? What's, what's going on there? You know, why would you decline an opportunity, especially if the opportunity is free? or very low cost to the family, what was going on that would, have, that would have led to them declining the services? There's a bunch of different answers to this question. Today, though, I'm going to look at the provider side of it. The family side could be a completely different episode in and of itself, 
but I want to look at the provider side because I'm talking to you guys today. How do you even begin this conversation? How do you tell a family that their child may have delays or may even have autism? How do you start that up? The really short and sweet answer is you don't. And I know some of you just kind of looked at the looked at your screens or at your phone or at your computer or at the dash in your car. If you listen to the pod, your podcast while you're driving and you're like, what? How do we not bring it up? I didn't say you didn't bring it up. I'm saying you don't tell them. So let me explain. In all of my years of working with different families, and we're now at year, I think, 15. Wow. I've learned that, unfortunately, there are certain, I'll say, keywords that can often shut a family down really quickly if you say these particular words. Autism is a big one. I, I hate that that's the fact. I hate that there is such a stigma still surrounding this condition. And basically any condition that means my child is not typical. Anything that basically spells out my child is not typical, you're going to get a reaction from the family. It's usually not going to be a positive one. And like I said, it can shut down the family from any further, you know, communication or conversation about it very quickly. So autism, unfortunately, is a big one. Uh, therapy can be a big one. Delay can be a big one. Those are some of the words I've seen that I've seen families react to. You also have to take into account the culture of the family. Sometimes even mentioning the word autism or even the possibility of autism can lead to a highly visceral response from the family. I have seen families who, after a provider or a daycare worker raised the possibility of their child possibly having autism or having major or global developmental delays, they have pulled their child completely out of the daycare, the school, the services, because it was just implied, just implied. And that was the reaction. It's a lot to face this idea that your child who, you know, the family or the caregivers may see us, oh no, my child's perfect. They, there is nothing wrong with them. To have someone outside say that, oh, there's something wrong with your child. Yeah, there can be a very visceral reaction to that. It didn't mean that the providers were wrong in their observations. To be honest, a lot most of the time we're pretty right. Our gut instincts when it comes to kids, if we especially if we've been in the field for a very long time, our gut instincts are usually pretty good. I always tell families to trust their gut instincts. Providers, trust your gut instincts as well. If something's telling you that there's something different about the progression of that child, there probably is something different. So it doesn't mean that the providers were wrong in their observations, but the conversation may have been executed in a way that was uh, that caused the family to go into defense mode or caused the family to withdraw. So maybe the way that the situation was introduced, how the subject was brought up, was not a way that that the family responded to in a positive manner. So how do you get around this? How do you figure out a way to have this discussion without leading to, you know, a family getting up and leaving the facility never to come back or causing this wedge between you and the family that doesn't really get healed or taken care of? Answer is you ask questions. 
instead of coming in and, and having this direct, this is what I think, you ask questions. I'll give some examples that I've used or I've seen other providers use as far as, you know, asking questions. So we noticed that Johnny eats very little here at the daycare. How does he eat at home? Does he avoid certain foods or have any eating habits that are different to you? Another example. One of Carla's favorite things to do is look at the colors on the backs of CDs. She seems so happy and content to do this for hours. Do you ever see anything like that at home? Third example. We saw on the application that Michael doesn't have any words yet at two years old. Is that something you'd like us to work on together? If you noticed, none of those examples mentioned autism, none of them mentioned delays, none of them mentioned disability. You are simply asking for more information. You are painting a picture for the family of their child's current developmental status. These types of questions, I think also if you do them in conjunction to introducing the developmental milestones to the family, gives some symbionts of power back to the family. Rather than having, it, like I said, an outsider or a higher up or a professional tell them seemingly negative things about their child that they may not be ready to hear, this approach makes the process more collaborative. We're now teaming up and saying, hey, I've noticed these things about Michael, about Johnny, about Carla. Have you noticed any of this stuff? The family may turn around and say, nope. We, we haven't seen anything like that. I don't know what you're talking about. That must be just at the daycare. And if that's the case, you can say, oh, well, maybe we can talk about how to make things a little bit easier for the child while they're at daycare. You still find a way to continue the conversation, but now you're kind of shifting, you're shifting that, the, the tone of it pretty much. Um, if the family comes back and says, yeah, you know what? We have noticed that about Carla. She... She'll sit there and just pull out like CDs and DVDs. I don't know who still has those in those in their house, but you know, <laughs> um, we know that she pulls them out and she'll just sit there and, and turn them and look at them. Uh, and it's like, oh, okay. And you can say, oh, so we've noticed the same things. Uh, what do you, you know, what do you think about that? You know, is that something you're concerned about? Because here's the thing, even if we may have concerns about the child, does the family have concerns? That's kind of the million dollar question because we could be sitting there thinking, oh my gosh, we need to get this child into everything. We need them in speech therapy, occupational therapy, uh, ABA, uh, hippo horse therapy, swim therapy. You know, we could think of a zillion things that we want this child in. If the family does not is not on that same page with us, trying to force them onto that page is not going to help the child in the long run. All it's going to do is alienate the two sides from each other more, and then your odds of being able to help that child severely decrease. And that's not what we want. We want collaboration in this equation. We want, we want a back and forth dialogue. We want teamwork. Because at the end of the day, that's why we're there to begin with. We want to help, correct? That's what we want to do. Forcing our viewpoint onto the family is not helping, even if every bone in our body and our gut instinct is telling us this child has autism. This child most definitely has autism. I have had that experience. I've had that experience multiple times where me and 
every other professional in the vicinity were like, this child definitely has autism. And the family was like, no, no, that's fine. What do you, you know, what do you do in that situation? Like I said, you start creating the, the picture. You give them the picture. The key is that when a family is kind of in denial and locked in to that viewpoint, you're not going to get them to change their mind by force. You're not going to get them to change their mind. And to be honest, you don't want to necessarily change their mind in the sense that I'm going to go in there and kind of convince them. You want the family to be able to organically come to that themselves. And, and a lot of times that's what's ended up happening. What I do is I, just like in those examples that I used, I come in with kind of just a, a symptom or a sign and I just focus on that. I find what, where can I meet the family at? What point can I meet them at? Is there a, a halfway point or a compromise point where we can all say, okay, this is something that we can work on. One of the biggest things that I've noticed that families, if they're a little apprehensive, especially about the autism diagnosis, if you come from the direction of, say, sensory, that is a lot easier for them to digest than the word autism. If you say, oh, it looks like uh, Johnny may just have some, some oral sensory things when it comes to eating, or we can you know, work with you know, other providers and professionals and see if we can't you know, help him with that. That's a little bit easier to swallow than your child has autism and they're going to need all of these different providers. Because here's the thing, even if they get diagnosed with autism, they may not need every single provider. They might not. So rather than hit with the doom and gloom kind of viewpoint, come at it in a kind of curious way. You know, don't sit there and say, hey, I think your child has autism. Say, hey, I've, have you noticed this at home? Because we've been noticing this for the past few few days or weeks. You know, I wanted to know if you noticed the same thing. That approach, again, collaborative. The number one thing that I want you to remember as providers is that the goal for all of us should be that the child has all the tools, resources, and support, that's physical support, mental support, emotional support, family support, you know, provider support, all the support that they need to thrive and to grow. That's the common denominator between all parties involved. Hopefully, that is the common denominator between all, fam all parties involved. The family, providers, professionals, the child. That's the common denominator. And that's the key to setting the child up for their po best possible outcomes. Even though I don't really talk about it that much on this podcast, I'm always talking about all these different uh, you know, topics and things that are really exciting to me. And I often forget to inform you guys that I actually have a business that tackles challenges like this one we were talking about today. It's called Spark Guidance because of course it is. And it actually came before the podcast did. And that business of mine is solely dedicated to informing and helping communities, especially minority communities, learn and understand more about autism. And I like to say that uh, Spark addresses what we call the four A's of autism, awareness, acceptance, affirmation, and advocacy. Because once you are aware of it, understand it, and can affirm with it, you're able to become a really great advocate for autistic individuals, and autistic individuals can learn how to be great advocates for themselves, most importantly. So I have trainings that I provide to organizations, to families, to individual providers, 
who want more information about autism and want to know how to work with, teach, and even learn from their autistic counterparts, peers, and students. Everything from Autism 101 to sensory to getting your class ready for an autistic individual to dealing with difficult, difficult behaviors, cultural considerations, which we kind of touched on today, and anything else you can possibly think of. I also love collaborating with providers to create brand new trainings. I have a huge sensory training that's going to be coming up that's going to be provided through the Children's Services Council. So that's part of the Infant Mental Health series. So if you are interested in that, you can go on the CSC's website here in Palmage County to register for that one. And like I said, I am also always open to do trainings privately with different companies and organizations in the area and beyond. So if you are interested in any of those things, if you just want to talk shop with me, so to speak, if you possibly want to be on the podcast, hit me up. You can email me at angelw, A-N-G-E-L-W, at sparkguidance.com, spelled S-P-A-R-C-G-U-I-D-A-N-C-E.com. You can check out my website, which is www.sparkguidance.com, same spelling with a C. If you want to find more episodes of this podcast, you can check out the website for the podcast, which is sparkupautism.com, S-P-A-R-C, U-P-A-U-T-I-S-M, sparkupautism.com. And if you want to follow me on Instagram, you can hit me up there at, at sparkguidance. So I look forward to hearing from you guys. Like I said, talk shop about autism or possibly participate and help you guys create some trainings for your staff and teachers and providers. So until the next episode, remember, be blessed. Don't be stressed. Bye.